If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn, please, to the Gospel of John as we look together at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. It is, of course, that well-known story of what we think of as Palm Sunday. And it takes place at the beginning of the second major section of John's Gospel. The first 11 or 12 chapters focused on the public life of Jesus. But when you come to chapter 12, the focus of John's Gospel changes. Those first several chapters were focused on the last three years of his public life and ministry And the next few chapters focus on that last week in his life. And so today we come to what we know as Palm Sunday, John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your King is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him? Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, Look, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. This past week, many of you have been in touch with emails and left comments on our Facebook page. And we are immensely grateful to you for that. Many of you have said how much they have enjoyed the services on Sunday morning and we are indeed grateful to you for joining with us and praying for us as we have tried this new format of worship on Sunday morning. Several of you I said when I spoke to you on the phone this week that I would wave on Sunday morning so here we are, I'm waving just to you and I promised I would and several of you teased me a little and one of you in fact said that on a Sunday morning you're now a little more relaxed, you're sitting in your pyjamas having a cup of coffee. And you don't know what we know at this end, because at this end, we can see some things you wish we didn't see. And so, Bob, all I can say to you is, your red NASCAR jammies are exactly as you have described them. So thank you for this casual approach to joining us this morning. So apart from all my silliness, we are genuinely thrilled that you're with us this morning. Let me begin with painting a picture for you. 
And it will introduce one of the major themes in our study today. I think for most parents and grandparents, in fact, there are memorable moments in our lives that we will never forget. And for most of us, that means this. The first day we brought a brand new baby home from the hospital. Several days before, we planned how we would do this. We made sure we had enough baby formula at home. We brought several types of clothing to wrap our child in. We made sure that our baby was well and truly wrapped up that he or she would sit in this brand new car seat, even though it was far too large for them. And of course, when we put baby in the car, mom would sit right beside baby, and it was dad's job to drive home. And recently I heard of a young father who told the story that when he was bringing his firstborn home from the hospital, not only did he put the baby in the baby buggy. In fact, it was a car seat designed for infants. Mom sat right there with the baby and he said, Richard, I drove home seven and a half miles at 35 miles an hour with my hazard flashing lights on all the time, even though I was on the freeway for five miles. I never went above 35 miles an hour. I wanted nothing to happen to this baby. It, of course, was, this baby was so precious. It was God's gift to us. And, of course, we rightly respond to the children in our life in that way. And there's another memorable moment. And that moment happens when one of your children turns 16. They're now eligible to drive. They have completed all of their classroom lessons. They have fulfilled the required numbers of hours of actual driver's ed. And eventually you take your keys and you hand them over. And often the parent will get the opportunity to sit in the passenger seat for the first time when one of their children is driving. And that's hard on a parent. Because suddenly you have to move out of the driver's seat into the passenger seat. You are turning over control to someone else. They get to determine the route. They get to determine the speed. They get to determine when to turn right, when to turn left, when to pull out into the flow of traffic. And that's hard for a parent the first time. Because suddenly... We're no longer in charge. Suddenly, we're not determining the speed or the route to take. We're now in the passenger seat. And that takes some adjusting, doesn't it? And over these last couple of weeks, as across the world, country after country has found themselves in a state of emergency, closing their borders, restaurants, offices, Places of work, churches, theatres, movie houses, schools have closed down. We find ourselves no longer in control of our daily schedule the way we once were able to control it. Some of us are concerned about our jobs and our futures. 
Others are concerned about our children's education. Some of us are concerned about our parents' and our grandparents' health. What if they fall ill? And over these last couple of weeks, we've had that uneasy, unnerving feeling that we're no longer in control. Now, I want you to hold on to that picture in your mind, and I promise we'll come back to it later in our study. And today, as we come to John chapter 12, many of you, of course, are familiar with the story of Palm Sunday. You're aware of its significance and importance. It's a day that millions across the world today celebrate. Almost none will be gathered in churches, as we said earlier, but will be meeting like this through streaming services. We'll be watching it on a screen. And here in John chapter 12, as the story begins to unfold, let me give you a little of the background of what's taking place here. If you have been worshipping with us over the last six or eight months, you will have heard me use this illustration multiple times. And so I trust this morning that some of you will know it already, but others, for others of you, it will be new. Others of you will be fed up hearing me say this, But imagine you're sitting in a restaurant having lunch and there's a large screen TV over to this side and one in front and one on the other wall. And on one of the large screens there is breaking news. The other is the weather channel. And the third one is ESPN and you're able to keep up to date with sports as they unfold. And whenever it comes to studying the scriptures, that is a good analogy to have in your mind. Because whenever you come to a passage of scripture that's there right in front of you, it's always helpful to remember what has gone on immediately before and what will follow it. In other words, what is the historical context of the passage What is it we need to know before we come and focus on the passage in front of us and also what is happening over here on the third screen? What is God doing in the much larger picture? In other words, what are the theological principles and lessons contained in the passage? Not just examining the unfolding drama and excitement of the passage, although we'll certainly do that, But we also need to remember its context and also what is the much larger picture of what God is doing. As you come to John chapter 12, it is absolutely crucial to remember the historical context. And there are two contexts that will be helpful for you to have them at the forefront of your mind this morning. And the first is this, that way back... In the Old Testament, in multiple books, book after book, in fact, places like Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel, they looked forward to a time to come when God himself would come into our world as a Messiah to bring to us his love and his grace 
to cleanse us and forgive us in order that we would come to know him and fall in love with him. So that's the first context. And the Old Testament speaks into this passage from John chapter 12. In fact, we read it when the children and crowd that first Palm Sunday said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And they're focused on some passages from the Psalms. And the second context is this. That in the passage immediately before this passage, in John chapter 11, there is an absolutely unforgettable, spectacular moment when Jesus arrives at the house of Lazarus. Lazarus, as many of you know, was the brother of Mary and Martha. Jesus was close friends with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany, not that far from Jerusalem, in fact. And in my mind, I imagine Jesus being at their house on many times, perhaps even staying over on occasions. He was a close friend to each one of them. And when he had heard that, rather sadly, Lazarus had died, Jesus went to their home, but he arrived three days after the death of Lazarus. And when Jesus spoke to his two sisters, he said to them, Please remember, I am the resurrection and the life. And in fact, he then goes to the graveside of Lazarus, to his tomb. And he calls, Lazarus, come forth. And after three days, Lazarus spectacularly, wonderfully comes back to life. And John chapter 11 tells us this, that as Jesus calls to Lazarus, all of the regenerating, transformative power of the gospel was contained in his call, and Lazarus came back to life. And of course, word of that miracle spread around Bethany and the surrounding area of Jerusalem. And people wanted to be close to, wanted to listen to this miracle worker from Nazareth. And so as we move into chapter 12, the third piece of information it's helpful to know is this, that it was the Passover season. And people from all over ancient Israel, in fact, from what scholars call the Mediterranean Basin, traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to look back and give thanks when God emancipated his people from ancient Egypt and Moses brought them into the promised land. And they looked back with great celebrations. And so that paints for you the contextual backdrop of what was happening And so many of the folks in the crowd that first Palm Sunday morning would be there for the Passover. And can you imagine what they were thinking as they heard others say, Hosanna, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and throwing palm branch after palm branch and quoting passages of Scripture and celebrating. And they, of course, would be thinking something spectacular is going on here. And, of course, they would be absolutely right. Absolutely right. But there's one other group you need to be aware of in order to understand what's happening here. And in John chapter 11, if you would turn with me in your Bible and follow along as I read, you'll understand not only was Lazarus and Mary and Martha delighted at the miracle Jesus performed, and you would imagine that everyone would be, but sadly, not everyone was. And the Sanhedrin of the day In other words, the Jewish ruling council, made up of the religious leaders from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they gathered together, they were not delighted that Jesus had performed yet another miracle. They were not happy that hundreds were flocking to him. They'd known, of course, over the last three years that he'd performed one miracle after another They knew that on one occasion he fed 5,000 with bread and fish. And now, as they gather together, this is what we read. Some of those who were at Lazarus' house went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will begin to believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. And he said, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. And then John writes these ominous words. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And as we come to John chapter 12, we know of Jesus fulfilling the purposes of God. We know that in John chapter 1, John tells us that he is the eternal word of God. He has the attributes and characteristics and nature of God himself, that Jesus is the very word of God. Light of light, true God of true God. That God is here in human form. That's the theme that dominates John's gospel. And John knows where his gospel is going. 
as we read and engage with John's gospel, it's clear that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. It's clear that as he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, he is the Messiah of God. Rightly, people were proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so from eternity past, God has been orchestrating and engineering to bring together this moment. And Caiaphas, without thinking, says, isn't it better for one man to die than the whole nation? Now let me pause for a moment. And you may be listening this morning and saying, Richard, thank you for the explanation of that passage from John chapter 12. Thank you for the contextual backdrop. I think I've got it. But Richard, help me understand, please, how this relates to me. Richard, I wasn't there that first Palm Sunday morning. I wasn't there to celebrate the Passover with the hundreds of thousands of other Jewish pilgrims. How on earth does this passage speak into my life this morning? Richard, do you really understand what I've been through as an individual and what we have been through as a family over these last three weeks? Do you really get that? Do you understand that the biggest thing in my mind is not what happened in the first century, but what is happening in the 21st century? Richard, the things that my wife and I talk about after the children go to bed at night and we lie there in the dark, praying and thinking. The things that dominate our life is, will we have a job in six weeks? Will our children be able to go back to school? Will restaurants and offices and churches and theatres open again? How long will this continue? How long will it last? Richard, please give me some sense of hope this morning. Give me something practical I can do. Give me a little hope, please. If that describes you this morning, let me encourage you to listen, and to listen carefully. Moments ago, you were asking for something to do. Well, allow me to say this as gently and as carefully and as pastorally as I possibly can. We began our study this morning by saying that as we look back over our own lives, there are a number of memorable moments. One of them was that first day we brought a child home from the hospital. We were extra careful and rightly so. And of course, when a child turns 16, you remember I mentioned the other memory is when you pass over the car keys and you're no longer in control and you move to the passenger seat and suddenly in your mind, this child who is now a teenager is driving and you are no longer in control. And that's hard, isn't it? 
one of the most difficult things we ever do is relinquish control to others. And I suspect you have felt that over these last few weeks. You're no longer in control of your daily schedule. You're no longer in control in your place of work. You're no longer in control of your children's schooling. You're no longer in control of interacting with others or visiting elderly parents or going to see family friends whose children you love and can't wait to spend time with them. And so our lives have been so restricted, so contained. And that's been hard to give up that control. And giving up control leaves us feeling helpless and at times hopeless. But may I suggest this? I focused on this two weeks ago when we first started our mornings together like this. And then I said this. In the midst of all of the challenges we are facing as a nation, as families, as individuals, you have a voice and you have a choice. And here is my challenge to you this morning. Remind yourself, if it needs to be every hour, or perhaps several times in an hour, that you have a choice. Not to focus on the things you can't control. Not to focus on the things you have no influence in. Not to focus on being cynical, skeptical, critical about others and other events and other things you cannot control. Be determined in your mind to dig deep. Be determined to put to one side the things you can't control. Don't be critical of them. Don't be skeptical of them. Pray for those who are in charge of these things, or local and national civic leaders. Pray for them. Pray for the scientists, the medical professionals who are working round the clock to help resolve this viral crisis. And focus on what you can do. Focus on spending this time with family members in your house, your children, your husband, your wife, pray together. Stay close together. Make this a memorable time so that in years ahead they will come to you and say, Dad, do you remember when we did this and we did that in the midst of the coronavirus? Dad, remember when you prayed for us? Remember when you helped us draw pictures? Remember when we wrestled on the floor and played with Legos? Spend time as husband and wife. If you get a moment, go out, walk in a park. Enjoy this time together. Now we know this is not easy. It's not challenge. It is extremely challenging for us. And it's not easy. But please hear this. That when you begin to focus on the areas you can control and you choose intentionally, don't be surprised if you find yourself back in the driver's seat, able by the grace of God to grow in your faith. 
To spend time with him. Become a better father, a better mother. Invest in your children, family, friends. Phone your elderly parents more than you normally would. Step out and help them in selfless ways. Choose to be the Christian he is calling you to. And don't be surprised if this week leading up to Easter becomes a week you will never forget because your focus is no longer on what you can't control, but you find yourself bowing in His presence again and again and again and saying from your heart, your mind, your soul, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord because not only do you know Him, you're moving to a whole new level in order to worship him and in this week of all weeks as you begin to move through Palm Sunday and begin to move towards Good Friday remember again the immensity and the enormity of his love for you Enjoy these days with him. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would indeed presence yourself in our homes over these challenging days. Grant us to sense your presence and your hand upon our lives. Refine us and shape us and draw us to yourself in ways that are unhurried, in ways that will enable us to remember again the immensity and enormity of your love and grace for us. Father, help us as we move towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday to survey the wonder of the cross and remember again the enormity of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.